All right. I'm going to demask here. Ooh, there we go. Is it working? You need to get close to it. Oh, there we go. that's scary. No. <laughs> Good morning, everybody. This is sort of interesting, talking to the computer and talking to you guys. <laughs> All right, let's start with our opening prayer. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Most loving God, through the window of the Old Testament, you showed us examples of faith, compassion, wisdom, and strength. As we study the women who are part of our faith story, help us to understand more fully how to depend on you for all our needs. We pray that the women in the scriptures will be examples to us in how we live in confidence and saving power. We give you praise, honor, and glory for all the ways you show fidelity and mercy these women. And we thank you for doing the same for us each day. We pray this in your holy name. Amen. All right. Oh, I guess I need to stand close. <clears throat> well, tomorrow, this morning we're going to study Rebecca. For those of you that might not have got the message, we're sort of um, not following the, the line of the Old Testament. Uh, you'll have Sarah in two weeks, so don't worry. She's coming back. Um, before we start, I wanted to uh, start with a prayer myself, and it's from the encyclical of Pope Francis, the Fratelli Tutti, which means all brothers. Um, it's the prayer to our Creator, in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Lord, Father of our human family, you created all human beings equal in dignity. Pour forth into our hearts a fraternal spirit and inspire in us a dream of renewed encounter, dialogue, justice, and peace. Move us to create healthier societies and a more dignified world, a world without hunger, poverty, violence, and war. In the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. That's the encyclical that just came out. That's from the encyclical that just came out. <clears throat> like I need to put these papers down somewhere. Okay. All right. Before we begin, let me, let me just um, mention that this commentary is a collaboration. It was written by me, but I'll tell you it was inspired by a lot of talented and spiritual friends and family. And also, uh, a lot of the information come from, came from many scholars on the internet, which are too many to name. So, just know that these might not be my own thoughts. All right. In recent years, there's been an increase in interest in genealogy. With the use of DNA, sites like Ancestry.com, MyHeritage, and 23andMe, to name just a few, they can trace the lineage for several generations. They can find out where you come from, what your ancestors did for a living, if you have relatives you didn't know about. Even if there is a genetic makeup in your history that can help determine your medical future. These insights are fascinating and helpful, but we need to look even further back and go in a different direction to learn the lessons from our past that will show us how to live the fruitful, loving life that God created us for. In order to know where we are going, we need to know where we come from. We need to know God, our Father, if we are to know ourselves. 
He has given us a blueprint through his written word. Here he teaches us about our ancestors, where the lessons of their lives show us God's plan for us, his children. God wrote the book of Genesis to show us his promise being carried out despite all the obstacles. He doesn't sugarcoat the tales in the Old Testament, but rather exposes all the imperfections and struggles of our ancestors to better teach us that all things are possible through God our Father. Early on in Genesis, we meet Rebecca, the second matriarch in the Old Testament. She plays an important role in God's salvation history. You might wonder what a woman that lived 1,700 years before Christ can teach us, modern women of the 21st century. We are part of Rebecca's story, and she is part of ours. Her story illustrates how God can further his plan despite the failings of his people. In a strange way, this is a story of hope. There is an adage that goes, those who do not study history are condemned to repeat it. When studying Rebecca, we're dealing with a world very different from our own, and yet we can't ignore the sad similarities. There was a sermon I happened upon that speaks to this. It goes, so we must not complain. Is there an affliction now endured by humankind that was not endured by our forebearers before us? What suffering of ours even bears comparison with what we know of their suffering? And yet we hear people complaining about this present day and age because things were so much better in former times. I wonder what would happen if we could be taken back to the days of our ancestors. Would we not still hear them complaining? You may think past ages were good, but it is only because you did not live in them. From the time of the first Adam to the time of his descendants today, the human being's lot has been labor and sweat, thorns and thistles. Have we forgotten the flood and the calamitous times of famine and war, whose history has been recorded precisely in order to teach us to keep us from comparing, from complaining to God on account of our own times. Just think of those past ages, what like. Is there one of us who does not shudder to hear or read of them? Far from justifying complaints about our time, they teach us how, how much we have to be thankful for. The interesting point here is that these words were not written during the 2008 financial downturn or during the recent COVID epidemic. They were written, they were written 1,500 years ago by St. Augustine of Hippo, who lived from 354 to 430. It is truly amazing to realize that there are some situations in life that seem to be constant from generation to generation. My initial reaction after my first reading of Rebecca was, is it too late to trade her in for another woman in the Old Testament? I was not a fan and was baffled by her behavior. After spending more time with her, I started to appreciate Rebecca's strengths and challenges. Though she lived almost 4,000 years ago, her story is relevant to us today. There's another adage that came to mind while reading Genesis. The more things change, the more they stay the same. Rebecca's story reminded me of, a popular, of the popular daytime soap operas that were around when I was in college. 
40 plus years ago. I venture to say that Rebecca's story would make a successful TV series today, filled with love, deception, fear, favoritism, misconduct, sinfulness. Some of the t titles of those soap operas would work well for her story. Days of Our Lives, As the World Turns, Guiding Light, and the best one, All My Children. <laughs> Our story begins with Abraham sending his servant to find a godly wife for his son Isaac. He does not want Isaac to have a pagan wife from among the Canaanites. From the very first mention of finding a wife for Isaac, we see the importance of lineage, where we come from. Abraham's servant has to travel to the far off land of Mesopotamia, to Haran, to the land of Abraham's birth, to find a suitable wife for Isaac. It is interesting to note that 67 verses in the Bible are dedicated to this love story. Using the Ignatian method of reading the Bible, putting myself in the scene, I would choose to be God. Don't get me wrong, I would never truly choose to be God, but in this scene, he has the leading role. He has the role of matchmaker. And who doesn't want to be the one to find the perfect match? It is hard to ignore God's hand at work here, from Abraham's prayer to swear before God, to the servant's prayer for guidance to find the right choice in a wife, to Laban's acceptance of God's will for the marriage of his sister. God is present every step of the way. The servant, through God, offers a sort of test at the town well to find a wife who shows kindness and hospitality to a traveler in need. Rebecca passes with flying colors. An important detail to note in these verses is that even though Rebecca is God's choice for Isaac, she is given a choice in her future. As with Adam and Eve, we see here how God gives Rebecca free will. He will never force us to choose him, but rather he wants us freely to turn to him. When asked, do you wish to go with this man? Rebecca responded, I do. In this response, we see Rebecca's belief and trust in the Lord and his plan. In her I do, we see the continuation of God's plan for his people carried out through her willing obedience. Let's pause for a minute and think about how we respond to God's call, to the opportunities that arise in our life to answer his will. Are we as humble and courageous as Rebecca? He might not call us to make a drastic change as to go to places we have never been or live among people we do not know. But when the opportunity to do God's will arises, do we say yes, even if it takes us outside our comfort zone? Let me just mention here that as an introvert and someone that really is uncomfortable speaking publicly, I am way outside my comfort zone. <laughs> The second chapter of Rebecca's story is more challenging. There's not much written about Isaac and Rebecca's relationship. We do know that Isaac loved his wife and that after 20 years of marriage, they had no children. Isaac prays to God that Rebecca have a child. God hears Isaac's petition and Rebecca becomes pregnant. Again, we see children are a gift from God, given at his discretion and in his time. There seems to be a lot of waiting and praying 
before God's plan unfolds. It is not an easy pregnancy. There is constant struggle going on in her womb, and Rebecca, in her distress, seeks out God for answers. God responds by giving her the prophecy of future generations. God tells Rebecca that she has two nations in her womb and that the older shall serve the younger. Here God is revealing his plan for the future. God chooses Jacob, the second son, to surpass the older and that the older, Esau, shall serve the younger. This plan goes against the tradition of the time which was that the oldest son be the heir and receive the father's blessing. It is important to note that God's choice choice is not arbitrary. It is not random or senseless. God chooses according to his divine wisdom, love, and goodness. Whether we are able to understand God's reason is unimportant. As it says in Ecclesiastes 11.5, as you do not know the path of the wind or how the body is formed in a woman's womb, so you cannot understand the work of God, the maker of all things. Before Esau and Jacob are even born, we see God's promise. It is through no effort or work on the part of Jacob that he will continue the blessing of the Lord, but rather it is God's plan. We learn that each parent has a favorite son. It does not say why Jacob is Rebecca's favorite. It's hard for me to even imagine having a favorite child. I remember an interview many years ago where a woman was asked, do you love one of your children more than another? In response, she said, yes. A bit shocking until she went on to explain that she loves the child most that most needs the love. I have three children and this actually makes perfect sense to me. Favoritism is different. Favoritism can only lead to rivalry, jealousy, and even hatred between the siblings. And that is what we see in Isaac and Esau's relationship. It's not clear why Rebecca makes the choices she does but I would like to give her the benefit of the doubt and explain her actions in part because she was operating with the knowledge of God's prophecy about the two boys. Wouldn't you tend to choose the son that God picked as his favorite? God in Malachi 1 says, Jacob I have loved, but Esau I have hated. Rebecca's love is in line with God's. Isn't that the right side to be on? So I would say that it was her faith in God's prophecy that at least in some way influenced this love and her future behavior. Conversely, the fact that Isaac favored Esau makes you wonder if Rebecca ever revealed to Isaac God's prophecy. The why behind the decision not to tell Isaac is a mystery and one that leads to deception and lies. As Isaac grows old and blind, he wants to pass on the blessing to his son before he dies. Isaac tries to put the blessing on Esau, not Jacob, which again indicates that Rebekah didn't confide in her husband about the oracle from God. I doubt that Isaac, a God-fearing man, would ever go against the will of God knowingly. 
Rebecca, getting wind of what is about to happen, jumps into action. Her motivation to make sure that her beloved Jacob secures his special blessing as heir of God's promise is a noble one, but the methods she uses are sinful. It is not clear if she is fulfilling God's plan or her own. If we examine our motives, would we be shocked to discover that they are not always pure? Are we motivated by ambition, greed, ego, jealousy, hate, or even love? Are we carrying out God's will for us, or are we driven by our own desires, which are leading us to sin? The mistake Rebecca makes is that in her haste, she seems to have forgotten to turn to God for help and guidance, and instead relies on her own ingenuity. In her plan to trick Isaac into blessing Jacob, Rebecca is the one plotting the deception, but Jacob is complicit in the lie. Jacob does not make a moral objection that what they are doing is wrong. His concern is that the scheme could be discovered and that he might receive a curse rather than a blessing. Rebecca's response responds by saying, let your curse be on me, my son. In other words, I'll take the blame. Rebecca believes that her actions are justified. She is willing to take the curse in order that her son receive the blessing. Unfortunately, this isn't how it works. There is never an excuse for sinful deception. Rebecca knew that God had promised that Jacob, not Esau, was to be the one to receive the blessing of the promise given to Abraham. She knew God had said it would be through Jacob, not Esau, that this promised nation would come. She had the right motivations in wanting to see the promise come to pass. She had the zeal for the promise to be realized, but unfortunately, in her haste and rashness, she sinned along the way, and so did Jacob. Even though Jacob pulled off the ruse, it was Rebecca that orchestrated the plan, and it is Rebecca that continues scheming even after Jacob receives the blessing. When she learns of Esau's wrath and plan to murder his brother, Rebecca again jumps into action. She contrives a plan to send Jacob away for what she thinks will be a short while until Esau cools off. She convinces Isaac to send Jacob to Haran, to her brother's home, to find a suitable wife. And here the story comes full circle. Now, was it necessary for Rebecca and Jacob to deceive Isaac in order to get the blessing? Was it necessary in order for God's promise of Jacob's blessing to be realized? Of course not. God can easily manage on his own. There is never a time where God requires us to sin in order for his promise for us to come to pass. What we see in this story is God's grace at work in spite of our sinfulness. In this lies our hope. God stands by his promises. He promised Eve, and he promised Sarah, and he promised Rebecca. One of your offspring will fulfill my promise. Here God is teaching us an important lesson. It is God that will fulfill his promise, and God that gives his blessing. Man cannot get it by his own will, strength, or effort. He will need God's blessing, 
and the fulfillment of his promise of salvation. But it is God who gives it. Christ did for us what Rebecca could not do for Jacob. She wanted to take on the curse of their sins so that Jacob could receive the blessing of Abraham. But she falls way short. Nonetheless, this is what we all need. Someone to bear the curse for us so we can have the blessing. Christ is that person. Taking on the curse of our sins so that we can have the blessing of salvation. So in conclusion, let me say... I am proud to be a descendant of Rebecca's. In her humanness, she made many mistakes, as I do every day. I am thankful to be part of God's family, blessed through the fulfillment of his promise. Out of your groups.